Hi, I'm Bosha Tafrata, and you're listening to Embrace with a Margin podcast, a space where I talk to researchers, scholars, and practitioners about the ideas that mobilize their work. Some of my research interests are on the production of socio-spatial inequalities, the politics of space, and practices of inclusion and exclusion. Today's guest is Dr. Rashad Chabaz, an associate professor at Arizona State University. His academic expertise brings together human geography, culture, gender, and critical race studies. He is the author of the book Spatializing Blackness, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2015, and further publications on spatial justice, cultural geography, music, gender, and many more. He is currently working on a writing project that uncovers the development of the Minneapolis music scene from its beginning in the mid-19th century to the release of Prince's album Sign O to Times in 1987. Dr. Rashad thank you so much for being here today. So as a first question... I want to ask, how did the experience of growing up in Chicago, and particularly the South Side of Chicago, has shaped your thinking and writing? First, thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And and yeah, being from the South Side of Chicago really shaped my entire perspective for the first book. And really being born and raised there is the thing that gave me a a perspective on the world. It gave me a perspective on myself. And it really continues to help me to understand the city, myself, and the broader world. And so for me, being grounded in that lived experience and the impact that it had on me gives me the tools that I need to be able to look at that experience and also to be able to think about the world beyond the south side of Chicago. So it is a it is a very important environment in a personal way. It's an important environment in an intellectual and political way. And I continue to draw on that experience in the work that I do as a scholar. This the city of Chicago, the state of confusion. This style I'm using is free. Or probably it would be if my mind was. People I'm behind because I didn't handle my functions while in high school. In your book, you address how carceral power in Southside Chicago began as a spatial phenomenon with the emergence of policing vice districts, especially any kind of interracial social activities. How did this contribute to reinforcing white hegemony on a socio-spatial planning scale? You know, segregation, racial segregation is so part of the tapestry uh, of American urban formation in the early 20th century, middle 20th century, and early 21st century. It, you know, it is as it is as common as school buses, as trees, you know, it is everywhere. It shapes the, the landscape throughout the entire country. And because it's so ubiquitous, it's sometimes hard to see, but it's also hard to understand how segregation functioned in other kinds of landscapes and had other implications beyond just housing. The where of segregation is not only about housing and schools, but it's also about bodies, you know, what bodies should and should not bump up against each other and come into contact. And so segregation, racial segregation, it carved up neighborhoods, it carved up schools, but it also shaped the sexual and dating marketplace of people in this country still to this day. Still to this day, when people date and look for sexual partners, they do it within racialized landscapes that were artificially 
created in the early and middle part of the 20th century. And those are our dating pools. You know, that, that's how we find mates. And it also shapes who we see and who we don't see as desirable, mm -hmm. you know, dateable. In looking at Chicago, I began to see that part of the anxiety around the changing city when immigrants were coming into the country, when Black people were leaving the South as, as refugees and moving to northern cities like Chicago, part of the anxiety was not solely about where they are going to live. It was also about how those people rubbed up against other people along, along race uh, and or ethnic lines. And it was about those places that were not beholden to the logic of racial segregation, those kind of interstices, those in-between spaces. The places where there was the most interracial contact were these vice districts. Those vice districts, which before large-scale immigration and before Black people started to move to the city, were well-known, they were, they, were, they were open, that dignitaries visited them. The city was well known for them. But when Black people came to the city and started to participate in those vice districts and began to live in the neighborhoods around them, then there was a problem because the fear was that Black men in particular would partake of the erotic economy in that place. White politicians and also many white citizens simply could not have landscapes where interracial sex was openly operating. They simply could not have that because it would send the message that Black men having sex with white women was okay. Now, mm -hmm. it was fine vis-a-vis -vis white men and Black women. That was fine. It was expected. But the other way around was a problem. And so carceral power in the form of policing responds to this threat, to this anxiety. And once the police really move in, precincts get set up, new kinds of technologies start, once they move in, the, the big discovery is that they never left. Those technologies got, got deployed and that form of carceral power remained until this day. Those precincts that were set up at the turn of the century, they're still there today. To discover that interracial sex, vis-a-vis -vis Black men and white women, you know, maintaining the kind of color line was the thing that this, that gave rise to this form of carceral power was, was an unexpected discovery. Like, that's not what I expected to find out. I, I just figured it would be something else, right? I, I didn't think it was going to be this. But, the, but as I did the research, I was able to see that it wasn't property crime. It wasn't crime in the sort of property crime sense. It wasn't higher rates of you know, criminal behavior. It was Black people living in a place where race and sex were a, a kind of commodity that the city needed to find ways to undermine that kind of access and police were the way to do it. And so the city begins to really find valuable using this kind of power structure to not only 
orient people's or to sort of control people's to control places where interracial sex might happen but it also becomes a useful tool to organize the city along racial lines right they become a buffer they they become a, a mechanism one of many mechanisms of control uh, they were essentially the first mechanism of carceral power to really control uh, and carve up the city along race lines Yes, and they didn't only move in, as you said, to exercise control in the outdoor life, but they also moved into the private life and the everyday life. In the book, you talk about kitchenettes and how they were spaces of carcerality in the private life of Black Chicagoans. Can you tell us about how that contributed to shaping Black masculinity? You know, in the aftermath of the police moving in around the turn of the 20th century, the Black population in Chicago begins to really explode by, you know, the, the early 1920s and the 1930s as, as Black people are just escaping the terrorism of the South. And they're moving into industrial cities like Chicago. They're being pulled there, for one, for the possibility of industrial jobs. They're being pulled there by the possibility of full citizenship. And, and they're being pushed out of the South because of Jim Crow uh, and the sort of totalitarian politics of white supremacy. And so as they're moving into Chicago, another form of carcerality emerges. And this one has everything to do with housing. Black people were denied the opportunity to move farther south as the Black population continues to grow. And so they're really on this sort of strip of land on the south side, it was called the Black Belt. Because of racially restrictive covenants that were placed into the houses, into the deeds of homes, they simply couldn't move farther south. And they couldn't go east because that was the lake. They couldn't go west either because of racially restrictive covenants. On top of that, there was also mob violence. But white residents would be violent toward Black people who tried to move into white neighborhoods, you know, stoning them, breaking their windows, surrounding their houses with hundreds of people. You know, it was a really traumatic and and, and terrorist behavior. And so Black people packed themselves into the Black Belt. And as a way to facilitate the Black Belt, that growth in population, kitchenettes were created. And what kitchenettes were, were they were apartments that were carved up into multiple living units. So, you know, one family would live in one bedroom, one family would live in another bedroom, and another family might live in the living room. And they, they each came with their own kind of hot plate or ice bin, or sometimes it was what they would call it, and they would all share the bathroom. So in a, in a, in a two-bedroom flat, for example, that might normally house three, four, you know, maybe even five people, there would be three different families living in those rooms. And so, you know, you might have as many as 12 to 15 to 18 people. It taxed the, the electricities. And so we, there were just constant fires because the, the electric grid couldn't deal with that many wires and, you know, uh, drawing on the power. Uh, there was chip paint everywhere. They were rat infested. They were really horrible. And they were also expensive. They were really, really expensive. So, what we began to see is that as Black people are forced to move into the Black Belt, they get contained there. And they get contained on two scales. One, the kind of intimate scale of the 
uh, of the kitchen at where that small environment that would house an entire family, literally the walls were sort of holding them in. They were also contained on this broader scale in that they could not move outside of the Black Belt. And so containment, which is another element of carceral power, finds its way into their intimate lives. And then by the 1960s, the Dan Ryan Expressway is built, which is a mammoth eight-lane expressway that, you know, ferries people farther south in Chicago and out to the south, southern suburbs and then into downtown. So it's, you know, one of these sort of easy ways to get downtown without having to meander through the neighborhood. It acts as, uh, as a line of demarcation between the Black Belt, which is to the east of the Dan Ryan, and the, the sort of white, uh, white ethnic community, mostly white Polish community, that was to the west of. And that becomes another line of demarcation and, and another way of containing people. So really by the middle part of the 20th century, Black people are experiencing carceral power through policing that really is placed into their neighborhood, their communities are overly policed, they're surveilled, they're watched. And then there's this other form of carceral power, which is containment. They're contained in the Black Belt uh, through, through uh, legal means in terms of contract laws and deed restrictions that are placed into deeds, racially restricting covenants. They are contained through extra legal means, mob violence that, that pushes Black people into the neighborhood. And they are also contained in terms of urban planning that cuts them off from other parts of the city, makes, you know, creates a border between them and the, and the, the broader, um, the, the larger white community to the east. And one of the things that this does is that it has these impacts in terms of gender. You know, Western masculinity is really built around these sort of traits, being straight, being a provider, willingness to negotiate a certain level of toughness, control, and physical and social mobility. The things that they do have access to are certain levels of control, which ultimately become a kind of patriarchal vessel for controlling the women in their lives or the children. So it becomes a kind of home base or intimate forms of control, which ultimately lead to forms of violence against women and or children. And so for, for Black men who are really kept out of those sort of structural forms of hegemonic masculinity, creating different pathways and different alternatives to give expression to those forms of, of masculinity, despite the problems that come along with them, are important. And what Black men begin to do in places like Chicago is that the physical and emotional pain of being contained but the physical and emotional pain of being contained as men who are supposed to have access, who are supposed to be mobile, produces this sort of warped understanding that the only way to respond to the carceral conditions of the Black Belt is to run, is to leave, is to flee. They become these sort of, you know, moments of flights of fancy, you know, simply being able to move around to get away. But what that ultimately does is that it places a burden on Black women. And Black women are left holding the bag, literally. They are left to 
take care of children on their own. They are left to be the economic engine of the household. They take on an unbelievable burden because these Black men who want what white men have, physical and social mobility, simply being able to move around, their want and desire for those things and being systematically denied that makes running, leaving the best worst option. And they don't really consider the implications that it has for Black women. But it also has this other impact, right? Because it's not uniform. It's, you know, for some running becomes an option and a sort of best option. But for others, it's being able to negotiate that place and to, to render a certain level of mobility within those landscapes, which ultimately produces and gives rise to another performance of masculinity. And that is really constituted around a kind of physical toughness, a willingness to negotiate and use violence. As Black people are packed into the Black belt, they're also not having access to economic mobility. And to whatever degree, you know, Black men and Black women, but Black men in particular, are able to get um, industrial jobs or able to get work, it's simply not enough to sustain them and their families. And so what we begin to see is growing levels of poverty in, this, in these areas. And that poverty produces danger because the people in the community see each other as a means to an end that for me is socially produced. And as a result, growing levels of crime begin to happen in that community. And, you know, we see this all over the world, whether it's, you know, Brazil or the Palestinian territories, it, it doesn't matter. When you cut people off from economic mobility, instability happens in that neighborhood. A lot of that crime, whether it's in, in Rio or in the Palestinian territories, is from men. We also have to see that level of criminality as a gendered response Black gangs began to get constituted, you know, particularly in the years you know, right after the Second World War. And these Black gangs do many things, but one of, the, one of the things that they do is they create a way for Black men and boys to negotiate and access the public. And so that masculinity is about how do men like us navigate, survive, negotiate, have a sense of control and autonomy in a place like this? And what they do is they begin to respond in part based on that. So you have some who are running, you have some who are just you know, simply hiding out, and you have some who are having certain levels of control and mobility. But all of those forms of masculinity are being constituted by economic realities, spatial realities that are organized along race line. And really what we see is this explosion of carceral masculinities. They are relatively ubiquitous and they become a kind of general option for how to perform masculinity in Chicago. More or less, many people have access to, you know, really regardless of where you live, especially by the 80s and 90s, they were everywhere. You know, I grew up in the hundreds in my working class neighborhood, uh, which was not nearly as prisonized as the Black well, those kind of masculinities were just everywhere. You couldn't, you couldn't not see them. You know, in this work, I'm really trying to understand how geography, race, and gender are working together to 
produce, give rise to certain performances of masculinity that ultimately become the kind of raw material for the prison boom that really takes off in the, in the 1970s and, and beyond. While we're talking about containment and social mobility and how they are embedded in urban planning, I was browsing Google Maps to look at the amenities that exist in the South Side, but also its delimitations. I realized that the University of Chicago is located in the South Side. Not far from where Robert Taylor used to be. And the University of Chicago, it has a big gate around it. There's a giant black gate that's probably about nine feet high that encircles the entire university. And that's not an accident. Yeah. You know, most universities are not gated communities, mm -hmm. but that one is because of where it is. Mm -hmm. And the point is the University of Chicago is in what we call the hood. It is, it, you can, you could walk from Robert Taylor to the University of Chicago. It's like a 20 minute walk. Yeah, I, I looked it up actually. I looked yeah, up yeah. how yeah, how long it takes to walk from there. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not far at all. Mm -hmm. And they put a gate around to keep the community out. That was the whole point. So it was this kind of a little white middle class island on the on the almost exclusively black south side. Even transit connections. I think there was one line that connects that area to the kind of city center. Yeah. The, the, so about 12, maybe 14 years ago, uh, the city built a brand new L train. We have this train system called the L train. I mean, elevated train because it like goes way up in the air. And that is just for the university, you know, and it makes sense. You know, there's lots of people there, you know, students and faculty and staff. So, but it's not for the residents of that area. It's for the students, faculty, and staff of the university. And it's beautiful. So it's like really pretty. And, and it is guarded by numerous police officers and surveillance equipment. But that place is also being gentrified because all of those housing projects were torn down in the early 2000s. And so now that land is being redeveloped and radically gentrified. So the racial demography of that place is, has really changed significantly. So as Black communities in the South Side are kept out of essential amenities and their own rights to access space and to be mobile, you also mentioned how they are redefining their geographies and leading further initiatives in their neighborhoods. You mentioned the role of community-centered activities and how it contributes to well-being and mental health, which shows how residents can be planning agents as well. I wanted to ask what are further initiatives that they are leading, perhaps in fighting against privatization? Housing, that is the big one, housing. So there's been work to uh, provide uh, former residents with better access to housing, because that's the main problem, you know? So since the, the towers have gone down and people have been dispersed, there are efforts for those people who formerly lived there to return to the area. And they are asking the city to provide affordable housing options. So now um, residents are trying to do a couple of things. One, really alert the community of what's going on vis-a-vis -vis, uh, gentrification. Two, make the kind of geographic histories that I've written, make them more available so that people understand what has been happening and how did we get to this point? And three, they are forming organizations and pressuring the city to find ways to allow for residents to return and or to maintain those historically Black communities 
through affordable housing programs, through other kinds of grants, and sometimes even through private funds. There's also an artistic component to this or a cultural component to this. There's a number of local artists who are trying to maintain the stability of those neighborhoods through various kinds of art installations and projects to center that community, to give them tools to be there. You know, so the, creating these gathering spaces are ways to incentivize people in the neighborhood to stay. As we're talking about artistic interventions in the neighborhood, I want to talk about something that I could not wait to bring up, and that's hip-hop music. I know how hip-hop fully redefined Black geographies and its cultural influence just spread beyond the U.S., and it continues to be an artistic source, an outlet of empowerment, expressing grief, but also joy and reimagination. I want to ask, what does hip-hop music mean to you? Oh, hip-hop means so much to me. You know, hip-hop is my first love. I fell in love with hip-hop. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but I fell in love with hip-hop when I was like seven years old. That was the first time, that was the first time I understood that break dancing and the DJ music I was hearing, the graffiti that I was seeing in my neighborhood, and this new thing, I learned like, oh, these are all connected. I, you know, I grew up as a b-boy. That's really how I entered hip hop. It was, you know, most people enter the culture through mostly rap music, but it means so much to me personally. But hip hop is the world's most powerful youth cultural practice. And, you know, wherever there are young people in the world, you will find hip hop. And what really hip hop did for me is that it gave me a way to take the sort of idiosyncratic realities of my neighborhood, how we spoke, the kind of potato chips we ate, how we wore our pants, all of those things, and put it into artistic expression. And that the culture was built on that, right? It wasn't built on some formulaic styles, like you got to do it this way, or you got, no, no, the whole point was you take what is in your neighborhood, and you put that into this, and you represent it in the way you represent it in your neighborhood and just make it fly, make it funky. And I I just fell in love with that. Like, I was just like, okay, so I can do, I can do and say whatever I want, you know, that speaks to the people in my neighborhood in these mediums. And that is the point. I don't have to do it in a way so that everybody understands it. If only the, if only the 12 people in my neighborhood understand it, that's the point. And I just found that to be liberating. And, and it was also pride-inducing. It really, it really made me feel proud of my neighborhood, despite all of the things that some people might not feel proud about, right? You know, it was, it was poor and working class. You know, we had violence. You know, it was all this stuff going on. But it really made me feel proud to be from that place because it represented artistically, you know, through dance. Or I was never a, a rapper, so I just left that whole thing out. But like as a b-boy, you know, as a sometimes graffiti artist, as a wannabe DJ, I could represent that. And then when people could come along who were really better artists and could represent our neighborhood in these really beautiful ways, it was just the greatest thing in the world. It was just like, oh, you know, she's from my neighborhood. And like, you know, that rhyme she did, or, you know, like, look at that, look at that mural. Like that was huge. And and it's like, you know, despite all of the things that are going on with Kanye right now, I know he's having a real hard time. I love Kanye because Kanye represents my mother knew his mother. She was a professor at Chicago State University and my mother went to school there. You know, when Kanye talks about certain things or even when when Common talks about certain things, most people don't know. 
But those of us on the South side, we know. And that was that those are those moments where where Common and Kanye and other South side rappers, they're signaling to us. You know, they're, they're saying, hey, we see you. We see you. And that is just it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Right. And you and you can't help but love an art form that that tells you to represent your hood, your barrio, your favela, you know, your suburb, your prison tier, your, your whatever that encourages you to represent it. So yeah, hip hop means the world to me. And I'm still very much uh, a hip hop head. I still love the art form. I still stay very close to it. And you know, like I have children who I'm bringing up in that tradition uh, as well. Thank you so much for sharing these bits of yourself with us. Another thing is that hip-hop music also helped in redefining Black masculinity, especially with the emergence of conscious hip-hop music that carries political messages. You mentioned Common, and there's Kendrick Lamar, Most Def, A Tribe Called Quest, and many more. But I know also that I contributed to redefining Black womanhood, and there are many female rappers that get less credit. Yes. And, I mean, in Chicago, you have No Name. Who's one of my favorites. I love No Name. <laughs> And there's also Psalm 1 and I mean a, a bit of the earlier ones like Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, even Megan Thee Stallion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. My, my daughter who's 13 and my girlfriend just went and saw Megan Thee Stallion like two weeks ago and my daughter was just through the roof. <laughs> I mean, just through the roof. It was her first concert. You know, everybody remembers their first show. It is the it is the best, and it's the one you talk about for the rest of your life. And this was her first show. She went and saw it was Megan Thee Stallion and Dua Lipa, mm-hmm. and she, my daughter was just like through the roof. She didn't sit down one time. She knew every lyric. You know what I'm saying? And the whole time she's like hand going back and forth, you know. <laughs> oh man, it was just, it was just it was amazing, you know. But those, you know, those MCs, you know, Lauren Hill, Queen Latifah, MC Light, you know, all of those black women, they demonstrate that rap music had really excluded them. And, you know, Black women have been a part of rap music since rap music's birth, but they were part of it in two ways. One, there were Black women MCs at the beginning. They were, they were there, but they were also part of rap music's evolution because rappers worked to exclude them. They were forcibly put on the outside and they were excluded in in really two specific ways. Parents closeted girls and didn't give them the same kind of public access to the block, to the corner, to the park that they gave their sons. You know, the girls had to stay in the house and watch watch kids or, (laughs) you know, just just stay safe. Whereas boys were given rain. It was like, go outside, you know, go, go do whatever. And two, boys blocked the access of girls into the ciphers and into the crews, just just not letting girls be part of. And those girls who formed their own crews or who were able to become part of the crews, boys, they got into rap music, you know, at the beginning. But those forms of exclusion, parents and, you know, and, and boys who excluded them, kept them at 
at bay, but it was actually through the process of that exclusion that really demonstrates how integral they were to rap music. And so the, the evolution of Black women and just women in general in rap music is really a story about you know, men and masculinity. It's a story about the way in which girls are closeted and not given the same kind of access to the public that boys are. And it's also a story of what of the kind of fight they had to take on just to get the mic just to get the mic, you know, they had to, they had to have this other kind of fight. And, and I think in many respects, women are still fighting for access to the mic. I still don't think women can give expression to themselves in the same kind of way that men might be able to. And, you know, even in a way in which men have been able to give expression to themselves, that's also a recent phenomenon because they also didn't always have the same kind of latitude gender, you know, gender-wise to do that. So for me in that respect, you know, gender and geography are always very important in terms of how we understand hip-hop culture as, as a whole and rap music specifically. While men have had access, they, they didn't necessarily have latitude. While girls were not given much access, the little access that they had provided them with a certain kind of latitude. And now I think as girls get more access, the range of latitude in terms of how they give expression to their art form has shrunk. For me, seeing rap music through the lens of gender and geography really helps me to have a kind of nuanced perspective and to sort of see it and talk about it and, and really kind of help to push for opening for girls in certain kinds of ways and also for men in other kinds of ways. I want to see more queer MCs, you know, who have access to the sort of broader markets, right? I'm, you know, I'm glad that we have an MC who is queer, who is a big name, but one is just simply not enough, right? We need, we need 30. Then we're talking, you know, yeah, I want, I want to see more latitude for men and I want to see more, I want to see both more latitude and numbers for women. More corners, not just one corner. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well put, well put. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much, Dr. Rashad Vaz, for coming on the podcast. It means a lot to me. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram and Twitter or at Bushra at InPraiseTheMargin.com. Stay tuned and see you next time.